two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by two guests. One is Melanie Rabai, the Executive Director for Open Government at the Canadian Treasury Board. And the other is her civil society counterpart, Rob Davidson. He is the co-chair of Canada's multi-stakeholder forum on open government. Hello, Melanie and Rob. <laughs> Hello, Melanie and Rob, and thanks for joining us. Hello. Nice Hello. Good morning, Richard. <laughs> so today we're going to be doing two things. One will be my standard interview to talk about open government and how COVID-19 has affected the movements. And the other is a mailbag episode where, where we'll be answering questions from the community. And we have a number of questions from the community and we'll try to go through as many of them as possible. But first are my questions. And it begins with an image that has been making the rounds on the internet lately. The image shows a multiple choice question asking who led the digital transformation for the federal public service. And some of the options include the clerk of the Privy Council, the Treasury Board, IBM, and a few others. But the last option, the one with the check mark in it, is COVID-19. What were your thoughts when you first saw that image? And I'm going to begin with Melanie here. Yeah, I thought it was very funny because it certainly feels like it. Um, um, but actually, I would like on that image a an additional square that would say all of the above. Uh, but it's really it's really true that COVID, what it has done, is really accelerated something that had been uh, going on in the public service for a while. And all of the the people and the the organizations that are listed on this certainly have been working on it. I think COVID just like made it urgent and allowed us to suddenly see the gaps that we had. And I think really helped us understand like what to prioritize, including network access, basic things like that. Um, so I think having to have public servants suddenly all work from home uh, was cataclysmic and capitalistic at the same time. <laughs> And it's, it's so impressive how, uh, I'm very impressed at how the entire community that needs to support this um, has come together. Like people like shared services, our CIOs, information management specialists, um, all kinds of people had to um, overnight uh, give directions and really prioritize a few things to enable that digital working. But I don't know, I'm looking forward to see what Rob thinks. Sure. And um, I, I'll take it from the, the perspective of, uh, as the question was asked with what I first thought. And I, I, the first thought was it's a little gallows humor and, uh, and sub, sub, substantially dismissive of a lot of hard work that people have done in the past. Now, um, putting the sort of the cynical hat on, it, it'll, uh, COVID will only be considered a catalyst if this actually results in more resources and the proper resources being allocated to facilitate the level of digitization that we would all like to see in the federal government. So from, a, from that perspective, it may catalyze it, but didn't necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily yet to determine that it led. So we'll see. It's, uh, it definitely helped focus the mind. Mm-hmm. For me, the ability to use video conferencing, and weirdly enough, the video conferencing was easier to do at the beginning than the phone, like the phone lines had trouble. Mm -hmm. and, and we preferred video because it allowed you to check on people and see their face, and, and it wasn't as hard as we thought it was going to be. Um, so I think there's a lot of great, great things, like even international meetings. I've had a few international meetings, and I thought, you know, how is that going to work? And it worked very well, and some are are managed a lot more strictly where you can't talk until you virtually raised your hand and others are a little messier. Uh, but I think we're discovering that um, some things are easier than we thought and then other things are way, way harder than we thought. 
And there's some areas that culturally, but for very good reasons also, because they handle cabinet things or secret things, uh, just had never experienced this and, and, and really had to uh, really sift through because they were doing everything in a secret protected mode. And then they had to sift through, okay, well, what is, maybe there's a 10 or 20% that actually I, I can talk about this on Zoom or I can put that on Google, but they, they didn't have that, that culture because they might as well Ooh. have everything secure. Well, I think one of the things that the three of us have had many discussions about independently, not necessarily with each other, is that a lot of the public servants adheres to conventions, not necessarily laws or, or legislation um, that, that suggest a behavior. It's not necessarily a rule. It's just that's how we do things around here. And I think with COVID-19, going back to my statement from earlier, which is it has focused the mind as to what's possible outside of those conventions. But I want to go back to something that you said a moment ago, Melanie, which is COVID-19, you said, has shown that there's some things that are much easier than you thought they were, which is, for example, holding online meetings and video meetings and all that. But you also said that there are some things that are harder than you thought they would be. Can you tell us a little bit by, you know, can you give us some examples of what you mean there? People need to understand that the, our systems were not made for the entirety of the workforce to work from home. So the network itself was not built to have so many remote connections at the same time. And, uh, and so what happened there is, you know, with a crisis like this, departments invoke what we call the business continuity plans. And that means that the critical people have access to critical things like network first and, and sometimes only them. So for us, we've had to be very, very diligent about not using the network and keeping it open for the, the first responders, people who are responding to the crisis, security people, help people, all of that. So basically, we should work off network. And that's mm. extremely, extremely hard uh, because of the way our systems are set up. Rob, you're a technologist as part of your day job. You work for the ICTC. I forget what the, what does that stand for again? Information and Communications Technology Council. So we do research on helping the digital economy and what will the future of work look like? So based on that, I want to ask you a question that's a bit of a derivative of what Melanie just said, which is, are there alternatives that the government should be considering? Well, they're, they're actually working towards this with the Cloud First initiative. And uh, suffice to say, if you go into uh, uh, a secure cloud situation, um, that gives you that sort of instant scalability uh, that uh, you need in those sorts of uh, these sorts of situations. So you don't have to necessarily add your own servers anymore, um, and uh, that that's uh, you know going mm. to be quite beneficial. Now there are sort of the the added complexities when dealing with Shared Services Canada as an intermediary sometimes to being able to get everything into maybe a secure cloud scenario. But uh, suffice to say that it's moving in that direction, but it's obviously uh, COVID hit, COVID-19 hit too early for a lot of that uh, benefit to be realized. Okay, we need to get to open government in particular, as this is stories from the open gov. And you announced, uh, Melanie, or should I say the open government team in Canada, announced on March 19th that you had to postpone your consultations for the next open government action plan. Can you give us an update as to where things stands on that right now? Yeah, and absolutely, this is very important. And uh, we already had people on the road. Um, we had had a week already of consultation in Ottawa and we were having people out in BC on the road and day by day, the, the things were coming and, and, uh, and uh, we realized that uh, travel was not, and, and meetings and, and exposing people was not going to, to work anymore. And our first reaction was because we were so intent and eager and we had this entire program plan. We were super excited about meeting Canadians and hearing uh, about their priorities. And so our first reaction was to say, we're pivoting to digital. So we're just going to... Uh, stop the face-to-face -face and pivot to digital but day by day and it was a matter of days um we realized you know this is such an extensive crisis that actually we don't think there will be an appetite 
from the people to have these broad conversations. Um, in those first few weeks, I think all of us were, uh, as individuals, like mm. we're kind of seized with the gravity of the situation. And I think our whole perspective and priorities changed. So, so we, we, I actually, we had the team rework overnight over the weekend, entirely the consultation plan to move it to digital. And then a few days later realizing, no, we can't do this. We actually can't do this. And also having conversation with the Open Government Partnership, which is an international organization. So for them, they also had um, the advantage of having uh, talked to their Asia members who were ahead of us in terms of the progression of the crisis and European members. And so they were seized of the, you know, this is going to, this is going to change everything. Uh, the OGP, the Open Government Partnership came out with, uh, with a note in uh, your consultations right now. And we also allow you to postpone uh, the, the implementation of your current plans. Now, now that we hadn't even thought through uh, because we were, this was early days in Canada, but I guess the OGP was ahead uh, in Europe and, and Asia realizing how everything was stopping, uh, which was then affecting the ability for governments to actually implement the current plan, not to mention conduct consultations. Um, so that's when we made uh, the decision to uh, to really stop everything. And it, it was very, very difficult. Um, I think the engagement team in particular had worked really, really hard. And we were, uh, the consultations engagement we do every two years. And it's it's so interesting and important for us because we, we get to touch people directly. And it's an infusion of new ideas. Um, and we take the pulse on where Canadians are at. And we can see the Delta. So there was a lot of, it was really hard. There was a lot of mourning that happened around this. Um, uh, so that's how we stopped the, the, the plans. And I, and, and right now, um, really, I must say, Richard, that we have pushed even the thinking on what does that mean for when we're going to start back the plan. Um, and we're just now starting to think about our current fourth national action plan, which had some deliverables. A lot of them were almost complete, but some of them, the hardest one usually were not completed. So we're looking at, okay, what, what is the, uh, what are the timelines that we're going to try to use and impose on ourselves to finish this off? Because the open government partnership is going to ask for it because they check on us. That's the, that's the difficult, that's the great uh, thing. But the, the, I think the fifth plan, um, at first we were, uh, you know, after we had to go through that morning of not having engagement, uh, we said, okay, well, we're going to use this time to really think through again, something that's been really, really hard for uh, us. And, and I think uh, Rob can speak to this is the kind of matching of our cabinet and budget process with the consultation. And I'm getting wonky here, but when uh, civil society or citizens are asking for very, very big reforms, in a lot of cases, these reforms for us to be able to co-create on something, we need to go and have some form of cabinet authority to do this and sometimes budget. And those processes take a while and they have specific timelines. And if there's a mismatch, well, then, you know, it's, it's, we, we can't entertain some ideas that really would need to be entertained. So we've been really, really trying to think hard about how do we reimagine the timelines and the sequencing of these things so that it makes more sense. Um, we were also thinking how the fifth plan was going to be very different than the fourth plan um, because of the level of maturity we were in mm. and because of the suggestions and great comments we received from the independent reporting mechanism. There's an independent reporter that looks at Canada's and any government's plan and says, uh, you have to improve this, you have to improve this, this wasn't very good. And, and the one thing we were told, like one of the things that really resonated was, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase, but you could look for the quote, is, is that we were kind of spread too thin and, and going a little bit um, too wide. And, and the advice was to focus on a, a few things that really, really mattered and really push these through. And really another switch that needed to be made was uh, we have a tendency in open gov and I think every country and a, a lot of us are like that to, to, to try to, to speak of open gov for open gov, like for the sake of opening the government, whereas open government should be a, a tool. It should be, it is a set of principles of practices of tools that we apply to problems. So the IRM said something that sounded very uh, simple, but he, he basically said, start with the problem. 
And actually, Rob, and I want to shift that to you a little bit as well, because I was at the Open Government Summit in Ottawa, um, I think it was last summer, and you and Tracy Lorio had a very impassioned, very, uh, you know, sort of speaking truth to power, opening, you know, pre uh, speech to the audience. And I know that the next uh, chairs of the Open Government Partnership have made a vow to be much more aggressive, focus a lot more on solutions. Do you think as a civil society co-chair in Canada, have you had a chance to really sort of offer those suggestions on where the aggressive, where the priority, where that focus should be put on? There's good aggression and not so good aggression. And so um, <laughs> uh, the first thing to sort of reiterate on Melanie's side, sort of arbitrary uh, deadlines that are very aggressive um, don't necessarily help. Because again, going back to Melanie's comments on the various uh, alignments that are kind of necessary to do with budgets and sort of engaging with the various departments where the real changes have to happen, it, you know, it's, it, it takes time. And because of that, we have to figure out different ways of addressing sort of these timelines. And so the idea that um, we need to be able to engage on aggressive strategies, but they have to have realistic timeframes. And so sort of just falling into what, even though they're like two year cycles, it effectively becomes 18 months just based on getting things mm. closed off from one uh, plan, trans transferring to the next and getting the plans together. Uh, it really is a very tight timeline. And to particularly for civil society, which has its own challenges and in particular, civil society is going to be directly impacted by COVID-19 and its ability to uh, uh, attract funding because so much funding now is going to go to COVID related issues rather than maybe the specific uh, direct issues that every civil society organization may have in their own right. So civil society needs to be able to rev up its network and get them involved on the various issues that are associated to uh, Canada's fifth plan coming up. So there's some real challenges ahead for us to be able to engage. And uh, we, would, we do want to be aggressive on a number of areas, whether that's the beneficial ownership, access to information, open justice, open science. There's so many different things and so many things that are actually relevant to sort of uh, helping with issues like COVID and uh, pandemic response that um, if they were in place, specifically open science uh, capabilities, that there would be a lot uh, easier sharing of research to sort of address these sorts of problems. So um, we just need to be able to have a, a practical approach to this to say, this is sort of the time frame that's gonna happen. These are the things we can do within the scope of the OGP, but there's these other bigger strategic things that are gonna take longer than 18 months. And therefore we will continue to work for them through the multi-stakeholder forum understanding that they may not be captured in the uh, fifth plan because of the timelines associated to it. It's almost like a, a trilogy like Star Wars. You have the whole arc that will take maybe a decade, but you have these installments yes. in, in the middle. Um, and actually, I want to stick with you real quick here, Rob, because I want to go back to, to something that, that Melanie said, which is sort of the new reality that we're faced with, which is, the next consultations for the fifth plan will most likely be digital online for the most part for, you know, actual sort of social reasons. But COVID-19 has profiled that the digital divide that we thought was present is actually even bigger than we thought, especially, for example, by removing libraries. A lot of people were dependent to have access to the Internet through libraries, and obviously we don't have access to those anymore. So what can be done to make sure that in the next plan, we don't necessarily bypass those individuals that will be forgotten as part of the digital divide? That's a great point, and, and it, it really goes to uh, a couple of the themes from sort of the uh, OGP Summit here in Ottawa in 2019, was the inclusion and also diversity. Uh, 
And mm. because those are, you know, so necessary, and actually in some discussions recently, people were, were pushing back at, at including in a mission statement for a, uh, a nonprofit organization, inclusion, because they said people are tired of hearing that. And that was a surprise <laughs> to me, but I can understand that essentially it's becoming a throwaway word that everybody uses but doesn't effectively deliver on. Therefore, it's diluting its meaning. And so when you come to this necessity to expand beyond the basics of the uh, civil society community, those who are advocates and activists on particular issues, to bring it home to the, uh, the average Canadian, and then beyond that to sort of the people that are in vulnerable communities that don't necessarily have access to technologies and or the time to be able to attend a lot of sessions, what are sort of the mechanisms that we can put in place? And so um, it, it needs to be considered. And unfortunately, I think for the sort of, if we were to look at this in terms of the specifically the fifth plan, I don't know if we'll have the ability to get a lot of that in place. I think um, sort of town hall approaches, I think is one way that, um, and, and physical. And so we, we have some issues there because um, until COVID-19 is over, um, or at least we can then have uh, public meetings again, it's going to be very difficult to figure out how we're going to facilitate that. Um, and that, you know, there's going to be some of that knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, we could do this all digitally, digitally, but that's not going to be able to engage everybody. And, uh, you know, we're seeing this in, um, in Ontario with the, uh, the sort of the implementation of school going back into session, but being online, that some of the sort of advice here in Ottawa for students who don't have don't have a network access at home to go to the parking lot of their school and connect to that uh, network. Now, there's also a uh, you know sort of a, a, a slight uh, implication there that you have access to a car because you're going to the parking <laughs> lot. And so if you have trouble with network at home, you may not have access to a car. And you know, is it really the best idea to have your equipment out in maybe a foggy or rainy day out in the parking lot if you don't have a shelter? So it, it's one of those things that we have to really look at. And I think that could be something that the multi-stakeholder forum on the longer term can deal with as far as how do we in, embrace this on, on a broader front with things like, okay, in the in sort of the context of a, a pandemic, you know, how do we reach out beyond our, our typical digital uh, capabilities? Well, Melanie, on that, have you guys thought, talked about, it may not be a true to the core open government and open data issue, but for the next plan or even internally within your own team, have you guys thought about adding an element of reducing that digital divide or include increasing inclusion um, much more actively. So like this in the future, those people that may not have access to broadband, and I'm not just talking about the Northern reaches of Canada here, um, are able to participate digitally that, a, that you need to take a role, a leadership role in ensuring that all Canadians do have access to broadband. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there, there's, Thinking about what this fifth uh, consultation, fifth action plan consultation will be, there are things that will be maintained and things that will have to change. And one other thing that we will maintain is a really important focus on inclusion <laughs> for us. We still want to keep that word. Uh, I think right now, all of us at some point are feeling excluded. Uh, I think there are people that were not excluded before that suddenly are and are experiencing how awful that is. Um, and so I, I can't see, uh, even if there is a little bit of fatigue of like, show me your results, but I think trying to make sure that no one is left behind and that everyone can have their say is something that will be very important. And we had focused on this for the fifth plan already um, in that we had specific target groups that we felt were not as included as we'd want them to be in the past. People like youth or the elderly, for example. Um, and so we had already thought through how to reach out to these people. 
Um, now, the added element here is that you're right, it's quite possible that if we do this in the fall, um, we will still need to be digital only. Um, and so what we are trying to do is think through um, how can we be multimodal, <laughs> uh, mm. having a multiplicity of channels with lower or higher bandwidth um, that people can use. So webinars, chats, emails, formal submissions, thing you could send in the, in the mail. Um, so we're, we're really thinking this through. And it's really interesting because you have uh, the big international organization like the OECD and OGP that have accelerated this work around how can we be inclusive if we are only digital. In the past, we were saying we can't be inclusive if we're digital only. Therefore, we will spend money and time to go visit places. Um, and that might not be possible. But one thing that was that we were doing, a strategy that we were doing that I think is still very important was to reach out to, I would say, um, civil society aggregators. So we are not experts in youth. We are not expert in um, um, elderly, for example, people, or we're not expert in, um, you know, specific uh, segments of the population that have not been represented. But there are civil society groups that are. This is, they, this is their people. They know them. They talk to them every day. And so our approach was to reach out to these different organizations and organize um, conversations around topics, problems, to come back to what I was saying, that were dear to them and adding an element of open government. So I think this might still be, I think this is a promising approach because these aggregators will also know how to reach out to their community right now. Um, so I'm not, you know, and the, the government is, a, is, is, is really huge and, and I'm not, uh, my team is not the one that is working on fixing the digital divide. Um, that is, um, I said, so the Department of Industry is doing a lot of things on this and, and thinking through this right now as well. Um, but we can practically, you know, and in a lot of cases, that's what we do in OpenGov is we, we start testing new ways and new things and we feed the reflection uh, of these other groups that are actually taking care of that specific digital divide pro problem. Yeah, I'm gonna say one thing on that, and that is Melanie's absolutely right that civil society has a role to play in this. And when I'm talking about digital divide and inclusion and the responsibilities, I'm not just pointing at the government. This is government and civil society have to be able to deliver on this. And that we do have to bring resources to bear and and we need to make it relevant to those communities because if we're if we're not being sort of hyper relevant and um, and in the in the build up and and sort of engaging with them to sort of making it so that they see the value of committing their time towards this and that it will impact their their group uh, that they that they advocate for um, that's how we're going to get them engaged. So um, we're running short on time because we still want to get to the mailbag, but I want to ask sort of a, a chicken soup for the open government soul type of question right now for the both of you is, which is, can you share sort of any interesting or amazing stories about how the open government and the open data community, whether it be civil society or government or even private sector, has sort of come together to solve this COVID-19 problem? And we'll start with, with you, Melanie. Well, ladies first. I feel extremely lucky that we have a super strong multi-stakeholder forum made up of very knowledgeable and passionate people. And they are translating to me, to us, to our group, what is happening out there because it's, it's, almost, it, it's almost too much for us to make sense out of it. And so we've been having calls with the multi-stakeholder forum who are playing their role as aggregators and are kind of holding our hand to tell us, okay, this is what folks are working on. This is what they worry about. This is what they need. And we're just starting to get organized to see those things, to talk about the wonderful stories and this is, seems to work, how can we scale it? And we're gonna do what all public servants do is we're gonna try to add a process to it, to make it efficient because we like efficiency. 
Um, so we're thinking of things like we have a suggested data set feature, for example, that's been relatively dormant on our open website. It, it, it needs a lot of love. So we're going to make sure that this is really um, improved so that there is a, a, a good, efficient way to channel uh, the needs of civil society. Like civil society is really channeling the needs and identifying it for us. Uh, and so that's very useful. Um, I, I think in terms of the, the good story, I think what we saw um, at the beginning are really quickly a lot of amazing um, people, not necessarily in government, um, actually, uh, and mostly not in government, actually taking data and visualizing it and making stories out of it. Uh, so we had data people, we had academics use this thing and put those wonderful, um, and the scientists also, those dashboards that we saw these weren't all open data and they weren't all open government data. So I think we first saw the value importance of data for all of us as citizens to make sense out of what was happening. We then saw the open data. And I think now we need to see more of the open government data coming together in a coordinated way where we can make sense out of it. And, and Rob, I probably should have gone to you first because you're acting as a kind of funnel for all these great sort of civil society initiatives what has sort of come across your desk that caught your attention? You know, there's those good ideas where sort of the people that had 3D printing capability came together, so they networked, they, they figured out what were some of the things they needed to do to help build parts for ventilators, as an example. And so that was a really good example of sort of how uh, the community, including civil society, can come together. Um, but there's also a lot of... Uh, energy being directed to things that are not necessarily always uh, good. And so, you know, uh, I don't know if you saw a lot of uh, talk about hackathons over the last three or four weeks. And unfortunately, unless you have good data, that's effort going in the wrong direction. Because the first part is to get good data. And frankly, in Canada, we don't have it. Um, and mainly it's because it's very difficult to sort of get the information and into a standardized way from municipalities, health regions, provinces, and up to the federal government. And so, you know, anecdotally, you're seeing some wide ranges of, how, of people's current predictions with their models, including here in Ottawa. You know, I think it was yesterday, the public health came out with estimates of 11,000 to 30,000 cases. It's a wide range because they don't have accurate information in that in Canada in particular, we do not have population testing happening and that the numbers around testing are only associated to uh, frontline healthcare workers and uh, other people in that realm. And so as opposed to countries like Germany where there's a much more centralized approach, they're actually doing both population testing and antibody testing to understand who is actually now immune or at least partially immune to getting the coronavirus. So it's it's one of those things that yes, there there's a people can take this information that's being put out by various cities, provinces, and start to chart it. But if unless there's a common language those are speaking, it doesn't really tell the population much. And a lot of the charts that are being published as an example have things like wide um, confidence intervals associated to them, the ranges of possibility. And most people don't have the the, the background to be able to properly interpret that. So we do have to be careful and um, uh, with how we direct all that great energy from civil society that we have to kind of hold back on things like the hackathons and developing a lot of uh, the charts before we know what data we're dealing with. And we may get some more uh, information today from the prime minister and their announcements about the models that are being used by the federal government. But at the same time, their challenge as well is being able to aggregate all this information into a cohesive and useful format. And actually, I want to stick with that for a moment uh, with you, Rob. I mean, uh, you were talking about some of the hackathons and, and that the community does not necessarily have the tools that are required to help in this situation. But another thing that I found personally frustrating is that the amount of collective goodwill in the community that want to offer their services and want to help the cause and, and rid us, or at least mitigate the impact of COVID-19, it seems as though the government is not equipped to handle 
the collective goodwill. Are you feeling that same kind of frustration that there's a lot of wasted power and energy from the community that could do so much more to help, but just can't? Yeah, that's a great question, Richard. And, and uh, the fact being, we wouldn't need things like the, uh, the Open Government Multi-Stakeholder Forum if everything was great. And so mm. this is part of an evolution that by definition, that is actually the vision of open government, that it's easy for the government and the community to work together on common problems. And so we're, this is what we're working towards, and it's obvious that we are not there yet. And so um, it, it is clear that it is a frustration, uh, particularly for a lot of people who are in the trenches in the front line, knowing that they, if they had just one tool or one bit of information or a little more resource, uh, and the ability to work directly with the government people that, that can influence that, that becomes a, a definite frustration. But we do have to break down um, the legislative, the regulatory, the cultural, you, your, your comment on the traditional inertia against that sort of thing. These are all things that uh, the open government movement is working towards. I think you're right. I, one of the things, like in terms of we, the government is not super mature in its capability to ingest and channel the power of civil society. And I would say the government of Canada and a lot of the most advanced countries are like that. When, one of the things I love mm -hmm. the most about the open government partnership is it's a true partnership is that it's not the rich countries telling the poor countries how to do things. We're learning from each other. And one of the areas where we're really learning from the less developed countries is their ability to channel that energy. Because maybe their governments are less mature, they have newer systems and institutions, a lot of them have learned to integrate that power and are always thinking about how can I get you know, civil society to help out? Or, and they have developed processes to do this um, in a lot of cases that are more advanced than, than our efforts. And so we're learning a lot through the partnership um, from countries um, that are less developed economically, but in, on that piece, they got really, really good uh, ways to do it. Um, I'm, as, as Rob is saying, uh, the whole goal of open government is to make government, not only the government share things externally, but make the government also more permeable to outside help. And I would say this is where we're very aligned also with digital. The same thing for digital. Mm -hmm. We have to allow outside and open source type efforts and crowdsourcing, and we're just getting organized. That I want to add, though, there's kind of a sober reality check that we need to have, is that um, this is a time where we as public servants need to be extremely rigorous and efficient because the needs have never been greater and our capacity is hindered right now. It really, truly is because we have a lot of people that have been repositioned to do things uh, that they weren't doing or with volumes like we've never seen. We have, we're not meeting face-to-face. -face. We have less access to the network. So we're hindered in our capacity. So we really, really need to focus on the things that will work and will provide value. And so I agree with like, with Rob thinking about a hackathon, like you really have to be sure that you have the data and you have the problem really set up because that requires a lot of energy. So it, it's kind of frustrating even for me because it's not like I wish I was more advanced um, in telling you what are we doing around open data and what are we doing to to manage this all these wonderful um, ideas like to to integrate and ingest the ideas and the energy of of civil of, of civil society. But but the reason why we're not out there more is that we're we're getting organized and trying to very efficiently prioritize these efforts. One of the conversations we had with uh, the multi-stakeholder forum last week was um, uh, trying to really reprioritize high-value high data sets. What are the high-value data sets right now that need to come out, open data that needs to come out during COVID? They, th this has shifted. They probably are not the same when you think about the recovery or the response. And then we need to map this with our ca actual capability to do it. There, It's like, it's like wartime. Mm -hmm. There's things we're just not going to be able to do it in the next three, four weeks. So maybe 
there was one thing that was higher on the list, but right now we just can't get to it because the people that would need to give us this data are busy actually fighting frontline. I can't, you can't get in their hair. They need to have, you know, to prioritize service to people. So who can we talk to that has data that is prioritized on this list? So this is the hard work that we're doing. We're taking a little bit more time to really then come out and in, an, in a more efficient way. It's kind of funny, Rob, you said something earlier, but is actually, actually, I think an answer I've been personally looking for, which is when will we know when open government is around? Like we know it's a journey, but when will we know that we're actually like living open government as a culture? If we're perfect, then there would be no need for the multi-stakeholder forum. So perhaps in a kind of weird way, once the multi-stakeholder forum is disbanded, it means that we've finally reached the open government level that we all want. Does that make sense? Did, did <laughs> I even say that correctly? I think I was fumbling all over myself. No, no, I, I think you said that correctly. Um, the, the only caveat would be is that there are multiple reasons perhaps for disbanding the MSF. And one of them being that open government has been realized. <laughs> I would okay. say, if I, I just want to interrupt here. Uh, my take on it would be that all departments and units have um, developed really strong networks and engagement mm -hmm. loops. Uh, so they're kind of informal multi-stakeholder uh, uh, forums. And I think a lot of them have, a lot of the departments already have, like some of them have traditions of really, really counting on civil society, academia, businesses. It's just not, it's not equal. It's not processed around. And so at some point we might not need to have one central MSF, uh, but it'll be everywhere. That's the only reason mm -hmm. say that we would need to, we could get, um, not have a central uh, uh, body that looks at this for the entire government. Yeah. All right. So we're going to switch into our mailbag right now. We only have about 20 minutes left worth of sort of time with uh, the both of you. So we'll try and get as many as we can. So let's try to keep the answers uh, uh, brief, but to the point. And we begin with uh, Nicola Spadina. She is with the government of Australia and she actually has two questions. Uh, one is, and by the way, real quick, uh, I'm not going to choose who answers first. You guys decide for yourself who's better equipped to answer the question. But uh, her first question is, what kind of activities have been successful in bridging cross-agency data, data sharing? The, I think the pioneers of having cross-institution are probably from the geospatial area and the, the National Resource Canada of the world, the StatsCan of the world. And I think one of the great example is they have come out now with a, a wonderful um, way to uh, showcase the uh, information across Canada with Public Health uh, Agency of Canada. So I think that is the, the one that is the shiniest right now in terms of cross-agency uh, data sharing um, with the pioneers being the StatsCan in our can as a uh, public health agency. 100%. This is her second question. What are some great case studies of data-driven decision-making? And again, I think we are living it live, right? And um, I think what we're discovering is that imperfect data is better than no data uh, because our health agencies right now cannot predict the future. No one can, but they have imperfect data and from this, they can try to, to, to model what could happen. Um, and this is, it's better to have imperfect data than no data at all, because at least you can anchor on some, anchor it on something. And I think this is going to be transformational, personally, for open data. One of the key things we got as a reason for not publishing data was that this data was imperfect. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this will accelerate our work on a revised data quality rating system to allow people to publish imperfect data with the right caveat. Um, because this COVID-19 crisis has proven that it's better to have some data imperfect than no data. Ron? I, I would, um, let, let's take the case of, I'm, I'm going to look at uh, the UK for a second and identify some of the work they're doing on um, beneficial ownership uh, tracking and uh, sort of their ability through their 
company house entity to track who are the beneficial owners of companies in the UK, and that there have been some interesting data-driven decisions and insights that have come from that process. So the, the idea being that right now in a lot of these cases for a lot of the open government uh, related issues, there isn't the data yet. And this is what uh, Melanie and team are working hard to get is this publish with a purpose sort of approach, which says just having things like 100,000 maps uh, out there in the world is great for those situations where you need geographical information, but there's these other societal issues, whether it be beneficial ownership or homelessness, that you need to have absolute um, good data on to be able to make decisions based on it. So um, I think that this is going to be things we can learn. And again, to uh, Melanie's point on the Open Government Partnership being a true partnership, that we can learn from the other countries and, and see what they've done that we need to uh, incorporate. Given the fact that we do have, unfortunately, the encumbrance of our federal system that has data spread across all jurisdictions and responsibilities as well. Okay. Next question is from, is from Sean Dykamp. He's a software developer in Windsor. And he asks, uh, can you tell us about Canada's work and resources on open APIs? And this is where maybe I'm hoping that uh, uh, Rob has more than me, which is a little <laughs> bit embarrassing. But um, so I'm very much of a generalist in OpenGov. And what you need to uh, realize is that uh, we are working with specialists um, and we're really just coordinators and aggregators of other people's incredible work. Um, so APIs are developed by usually um, the data owners and we have um, um, other uh, departments that are working on uh, uh, API stores, which we then host um, on our site or point to. So all that good work is happening and I could probably find out more and, and give you more on this. Um, my job is to enable uh, the, the APIs enable their discoverability and to push it through also when we go in the different departments and go talk to the CIOs, remind them of the importance of adding this uh, because it just makes uh, the data so much more valuable when there's an API on it. Okay. Rob, do you have uh, anything to add to that? Well, I, I, being a, a data person professionally, uh, the, uh, the open API provided by Stats Canada is, is an interesting one to leverage um, because it does give you that ability. And also um, the federal government actually provides off of uh, the open government uh, uh, portal, uh, the API store. And so, you know, it's, a, it's essentially the place where you can go and, and a one-stop shop for all the APIs that the government has. So, it's, it's worthwhile in sort of the context of this question to sort of um, to explore that because, you know, it, it, everything from sort of labor market information and uh, stuff from Health Canada on nutrients. Um, it, and really, it's coming down to it's part of the overall open data strategy. The reason that open APIs are important is it allows you to facilitate a network based solution that can immediately access the most recent information that has been posted by the Canadian government rather than relying on periodic downloads of the data and then having to store all that stuff and search it yourself. So the whole idea of the API is to em embrace this ability to build networked applications. Okay, next question is from Connie McCutcheon from the region of Niagara. When will Canada Post release postal codes as open data sets? And this data set in particular would be very useful right now and relevant as we try to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. So this is the, still the number one uh, data set on our suggested data set. Historically, it has been something that people have requested. Um, but this data set is owned by Canada Post, who is a crown corporation. And um, they uh, right now have a, a business model uh, where they depend on um, this, this data um, to, and, and the monetization, I would say, of this data to, uh, for their business model. Um, so that is why it's not being released right now. All right, go ahead, Rob. Suffice to say that for a lot of civil society, civil society organizations, 
having access to the postal code information can be really uh, advantageous to their ability to deliver services in the build-out programs. Um, it is unfortunate that this, is, this data set is in sort of the hands of a crown corporation uh, that, and again, maybe as a catalyst, uh, we can better articulate through the sort of the COVID lens that um, this is something that is a asset to Canadians and something that they all should have access to. Uh, I'm going to jump in a, a little bit here because this question is relevant to what we're talking about. But this comes from Tracy Lorio, the pro, uh, professor at Carleton University. And she says that the, st the Statistics Act, Section 17.2b, states that the Chief Statistician of Canada can release information if he asks people to do so. Have you considered reaching out to Anil Aurora and ask them to make a request to release high value data sets like postal codes or data related to beneficial ownership? Wow. So the, this is a true Tracy question. I love her. Uh, <laughs> she always asks these really difficult uh, questions. Um, and I would say like with a lot of energy and that's, uh, and so it's going to be very difficult for me to answer because I would get quickly in trouble uh, because there's legislation implicated and who has what and who's allowed to do the, do what. And I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but the only thing I would say is uh, we can require people to do things, but if they're not in a position to do it because the data is not cleaned up or it's full of private information or uh, they don't have the capacity, like in, in some cases, I think in a lot of cases, the data is not coming out because the, the capacity to get this data out is not there. Uh, there are constraints, other types of constraints, including other laws that we need to uphold uh, for this, for, for, um, this data. Um, and may, sometimes it just hasn't been prioritized because this group has another a part of their business that really is a priority and, and the, 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 the publishing of their data never made it to the top. Um, so I would say that for me as a public servant, knowing the system requiring which your, your fist on the, on the, on the counter doesn't often work. Um, it's not, it's not an approach that I would favor. Um, and because I don't think that's the problem. I think it's a problem in a lot of cases of capacity or prioritization. Rob? There is this exception to prohibition in, in the statistics act that gives the chief statistician this order capability, but it still, I think requires the, the, in 17 b it still requires the consent by the organization concerned. So in this case, uh, uh, Canada Post for postal codes. Uh, so that's problematic. And, um, but but there, there, we also have to sort of, on this particular issue, draw to the point, well, what is under what condition um, is this going to be able to be changed? Because there's so many different things uh, where, you know, Anarchan at one point, probably through their systems was making money off of uh, maps and they decided to make that all public. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It became much more useful to Canadians and it, it actually expanded their capability of supporting Canadians and they were able to build their teams and, and facilities and programs off of that. So at some point, some inflection pivot uh, point has to come where this idea that they have to protect this revenue is no longer the the most important issue and maybe covid's that case the next question is from actually no real quick before i go to the next question i want to throw in this little plug uh, recently i published an episode of the podcast with um, former mp tony clement the person the, the mp who brought us into the open government partnership and i asked him that question as well and he says i think you're going to have to petition your mps to create legislation it's the only way we'll be able to compel Canada Post. So um, we've got to become lobbyists, it seems like, when it, when it comes to this issue, whereas so many other countries around the world are releasing postal code or zip codes or their equivalents already in open data. So I want to throw in mm -hmm. my nickels as well. So yeah. Uh, all right. Next question is from uh, Bianca Tomazelli. She's with the city of Montreal. And it's a pretty long question, so uh, please bear with me. Can you tell us how open government can 
or is improving the interaction between governments. So for example, we know that it has taken a great effort by the committee from the Joint Council to build and put in place the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework, which facilitates digital identities. If this initiative were already in place, all government jurisdictions would be able to offer faster services for citizens in a situation like we have today. So I'll start and then uh, I'm sure Rob will provide, a, like I, he feels more wonkish than me, so I'm a little jealous right now. <laughs> uh, but um, I would say, I would say, I don't think this is an open government question in that the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework is to share um, personal information. And that's why we put these, you know, that's why it was complicated to do because we need to protect this information. It's not the kind of information that is open data at all. Um, so in, in, in like open government can help in that we are, we have a fantastic network um, of, of collaborators in all the provinces. Um, and our work is very complementary, and we share a lot. And these are data people. And so there's this network of data people. So I think solutions sometimes can, can come um, from this group of people, but this is very much a, a separate, separate stream. Um, and I think we should be happy about this as citizens because that is, that is not open information or open data. Rob? Uh, this is a, a, um, a multifaceted question uh, as far as, uh, first off, sort of to take it at the aggregate level, which is, you know, uh, what are the sort of the strides that are happening for the cooperation between the various levels of government? Uh, and, and there are strides being made in, in some areas. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done, but sort of some of the uh, experimentation that's gone on between the federal government and Alberta on sharing open data portal and uh, work with BC as well are all promising. Uh, but in particular around the trust framework issue, the Pan-Canadian trust framework, uh, it isn't just for individuals actually, because uh, you can issue uh, digital ideas to, IDs to organizations. Yeah. And actually in some work I'm doing on beneficial ownership, uh, the Pan-Canadian trust framework is a key component mm. um, because it gives us the ability to identify organizations uh, and understand who is where, and particularly for tracking uh, beneficial owners, if we had both the individuals and the organizations uh, with uh, verifiable digital IDs, it's very hard to uh, sort of hide from scrutiny at that point. So the, the good work being done by DIAC and Joni Brennan that uh, kind of drive the Pan-Canadian framework are, are, are very much at the front end of making this happen. And it will result in the ability to bridge across the, the various jurisdictional uh, boundaries that affect a lot of issues. And it, it will get into healthcare. It will get into uh, delivering coordinated services across provinces and, and the federal government. So when that is in place, it will be a, a, a quite a good platform for providing a lot of shared service. Yeah, and I'd be happy to have one of my colleagues. They could they're doing excellent work on this and super passionate mm -hmm. and knowledgeable. So if you if you want, you know, bring them in and have another conversation just on that. Okay, yeah, no, definitely, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay. The last question before we wrap things up, and we only have a couple of minutes. Uh, so we'll try try to keep your answers brief, which is are there this is from Nabil Ahmed from Open North. And he says or he asks are there any challenges or opportunities related to open government and open data that you or your colleagues did not anticipate before the outbreak hit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, think, um, I think this is really um, helping us identify uh, the gaps um, that we weren't aware of and the urgency of, of some things. Um, and uh, I think what it's putting, where it's strangely enough um, kind of accelerating some of our thinking is around really boring and plumbing things such as standardization. One of the key issue we have right now is that the data is not comparable. Um, and it yeah. sounds so silly <laughs> to be like this right now. Uh, we knew this was a problem, but the standardization is of of this of help data especially is 
is extremely uh, difficult and painful thing to do, given that we have so many different organizations working on it. Um, so I, I don't think it was necessarily new, but it, it's just um, something that really percolated up uh, in, a, in a big, big, big way. Rob? I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that answer from Melanie. And the only thing that I would add is that I do believe it'll be important, you know, when we sort of do the postmortem on uh, COVID response and sort of the things that happened. I think that it, it needs to be beyond just a, a cold technical and, and uh, administrative look at it. I think that it would be important to bring in sort of like ethnographers and other people into that equation to understand the human impact of this mm. and the societal so that we can quantify uh, the sort of the cultural issues that, that and sort of the system issues that are, um, that may have restricted some of the response. Let's learn from this. It's a, uh, what a great way to end the episode at that because everything that we're working towards some of us longer than others is all about the human experience. And there's, I know a listener right now by the name of Derek Alton, and he had questions related to that, that he's very much passionate about, um, that we can get to his questions, but fundamentally what we're trying to do is, is create a better human experience. And uh, we talked about it earlier, COVID-19 has sort of focused the mind, has acted as a catalyst in some instances, it has profiled some of the holes that maybe were not identified before and it's forcing sort of the government and the civil service to work differently and to work with each other. It's sort of putting our, it's putting us in the same room more than ever. So with all that being said, I want to thank you both, Melanie and Rabat. I don't know why I keep going to French when I say Rob Rabat. <laughs> I think it's because I'm starting with Melanie and I'm going to Rob. I'm so sorry about that. That's no worries. Uh, so thank you, Melanie and Rob, for, for taking part and trying something new with the mailbag. And I also want to thank our audience for listening and sending in their questions. Uh, and as usual, please leave us a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better, or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.